All right, I'm going to, I'd like to read uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses uh, 14 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves when I say, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Let us pray. Father God in heaven, we do thank you that you've looked down upon us and you've considered our feeble estate and our weakness. You have adopted us and you nurture us. We pray, Father, that we would come to know all the more those things that you have provided for our nourishment, for our growth, for our assurance, that we might, Father, walk in a manner consistent with that calling. Help us, Father, to understand these things and help us, Father, to bring these things to our brothers and sisters in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Um, The movie came out a number of years ago called The Mission with uh, Robert De Niro, I think, and Jeremy Irons or somebody. And uh, it was really an interesting uh, movie. Uh, in In the movie, Robert De Niro, I think, if I remember correctly, kills his brother and feels terrible about it. Uh, He was kind of a mercenary and uh, tries to atone for his own sin. And a huge portion of the movie is him trying to atone for his own sin. And uh, the things that he goes through to somehow, you know, know, do penance. And if any of you saw, I mean, it's just the pain that he puts himself through. He's... He's, he's lugging a big net uh, full of armor, you know, carrying it through the jungle and the forest and streams and climbing waterfalls and the, the blood is, you know, coming off of his shoulders. And it, he's doing everything he can to try to get rid of that guilt that he felt for, for killing his own brother. I think in a certain sense, this is a burden that is carried by all believers who do not have a profound understanding of the justification that comes through Jesus Christ alone. It is a, a burden that, uh, sadly, the many in even Protestant churches seek to bear upon their own shoulders. During, uh, I mentioned radio broadcasts a lot, because uh, when I used to do the radio, talk radios, where I, really got to hear a lot of, uh, of what's going on, you know, because you just get so many calls and you hear all these, all these different views. But I remember doing, when I was doing radio, I would often uh, get, even though it was more theological in nature, inevitably I'd get calls from people who were, uh, needed counseling, people who had serious problems, emotional or psychological problems. Many of them had bought all the snake oil that I had spoken of last night. And... Um, and yet their own sin, like floodwaters, uh, surrounded them, cast them to and fro, and they felt untethered and they wanted help. And by the way, that's probably why you'll notice that so much of Christian radio is, uh, is either political you know, or it's psychological. 
and very little, by the way, of Christian radio is theological, where you actually have people exegeting texts and what have you. Well, as I became more and more reformed in my thinking, and I mean, quite frankly, you know, I use that term here, but I would say if I were talking to a different audience, I would say as I, as I became more and more biblical in my thinking, um, I started having a uh, response to these types of callers, an initial response, not that I would ignore you know, whatever counsel I could give them, but I would often ask a question of the caller that they thought was right out of left field. They would share with me their problem. I'd listen for a while, and I'd ask them, when was the last time you took communion? And the general response I got from that question was, what does that have to do with anything? And my response to that was, it has everything to do with everything. How remedial have we become that we view as expendable that which was instituted by Jesus himself as a perpetual sacrament through which he bestows grace upon his bride. I think the words of John Calvin are very true when he said that the cure is prevented by no other cause than the length of time during which we have become accustomed to the disease. I don't know if you realize this, and I say this just because I recognized it in my past and I've just noticed it, um, I called, I did, a, I did another, I was going to do a show on this, but I ended up not doing it, but I did a little research on some of the megachurches, and I called them and said, how often do you do communion? And uh, it took about, I got the secretary and then the office manager and on and on and on, and nobody knew. And I finally got to somebody who had an answer, and they said, well, you know, once or twice a year or, you know, some, as, uh, as often as a pastor thinks we need to do it. But we're a pretty big church, so it's kind of inconvenient to do uh, communion. Truly, the notion of the Lord's table truly having an impact on the lives of Christians has become passe. It is an antiquated notion. And yet, as I read just a minute ago, Paul calls it a cup of blessing. It is God's cup of blessing. Yet we have become so accustomed to its absence, or at least the emphasis, that it's descended to a level of being dispensable. And the gap has been filled with lesser things. God has instituted for the nurturing of his bride an organism called the church. And I think it would do us well to examine just what the role of the church actually is. And so I'm, I'm, change, I'm shifting gears here a little bit, and I'm going to get back to the, the sacraments. But I mention that because um, this is something that happens and should happen in our churches, the Lord's Supper. It's something that I think is very important. And yet the reason I think that's expendable is because the whole idea of what's supposed to take place at church is, um, is really you know, far removed, I would argue, from what it seems the Bible is saying should take place when God's people gather together to worship God. So I want to move right now from that, what I just was talking about, the, the sacrament in terms of a, a means of grace. And that's, by the way, the title uh, of talk number eight, a means of grace. This is part one. Our next section will have part two. That God has, God has instituted for the nurturing of his bride an organism called the church. And I think it would do us well to examine what the role of the church actually is. I think we need to know what that is. And I think, it, I think we need to know. I mean, I, I think it's important for us to know. 
I mean, I, I don't know. Again, I look at the audience and I wonder here how many people are going, well, I already know that. Uh, but you know, it's good to be reminded, I guess, if you already do. And if you don't, I think it's important to know what the roles of the church actually are, that we might avail ourselves of those things that God has provided for our, for our sanctification, uh, to conform us into the image of His Son. There, um, there is a school close to where I live. My two older sisters went to it, a junior high school. It's, now it's a community center. And uh, interestingly enough, on the uh, side of the school, carved in the cement of the school, way up high, are the words, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, that's an interesting thing to have on the side of a school. I was at a local high school just recently, and I was invited to come and talk to the senior class uh, about, um, well... They asked me, will you come and talk to the senior class? And I, I used to do baccalaureates and graduation ceremonies, you know, never anymore. I haven't been invited for 10 years. Matter of fact, the last time I was in a high school classroom, because I, I have a credential to teach high school, and so I was doing a little bit of teaching. This was 10 or 12 years ago. I was, I was uh, doing a speech class, and I brought in some commentaries, and I said, okay, take this little chunk of, uh, you know, scripture and write a speech about it. And a girl raised her hand. She goes, I have to go to the bathroom. Can I go? I said, sure. She went to the bathroom, came back. Ten minutes later, I was escorted out of the classroom by two men with dark glasses and walkie-talkies and never invited back. So I was pretty shocked. Uh, what happened was the girl went and called her mother, and the mother called the school. And the school. I mean, they were there faster than the paramedics to get me out of there. And uh, so that was it for me. I was never invited back. And uh, But then I just got a... a, a invited to go this last year. I was a little bit nervous, and I, this lady, who was the senior class sponsor, said, will you come and talk to our seniors? And I looked at her, and I said, well, what do, you, what do you want me to talk about? I mean, you know what I'll talk about. She goes, you know what? They just need direction. Just come and talk with them. And I said, all right, I will, you know. And I did, and I came and talked to them, and uh, I thought it was a very edifying and valuable time, and I was trying to figure out how do I segue into this. Uh, you know, I wanted to keep one eye on the door, one eye on the kids, one guy on the teacher, you know, and my heart in the, in the Lord the whole time. And that's what I started with. I go, hey, you guys know the school over here, you know, the community center? Yes. You know what it used to be, a school. I go, you know what's written on the side of that? And they all kind of remembered a little bit. I said, you know, where there's no vision, people perish. I go, you know where that is? You know where that comes from? And nobody knew. I said, you know, it's, it's, it's in the Proverbs, in the Bible. I go, does anybody see any irony here? And one kid in the back raised the penny and goes, yeah. It used to be a school. Now they don't allow the Bible even in schools. Interesting. You know, he got to say it. I didn't say it. Then I asked, does anybody know what that means? What does that mean? Where there is no vision, the people perish. Because I always thought that it meant you have to have a dream, right? Where you have no dream. If you have no dreams, you die. And yet, that's really not what that means in the Hebrew. The idea, if you look it up and you kind of study it with the word, it's the, the vision is really the prophet. It's the word of God. What that means is where there is no word of God, the people will perish. The people will die. We just had an interesting experience this morning. I'm looking around to see who's listening. And uh, somebody who's not... Um, uh, part of our group here, uh, came up to a parent of a child and said, you know what, do you realize that I've seen that your child's going to have visions and dreams? 
and um, I'm sitting at the table looking over my notes and drinking my coffee, and there was just this dead silence. You know, this uh, nine-year-old little boy he goes, you know, I, you know, I've, you know, he's going to have dreams, he's going to have visions. And uh, I looked up, and nice guy, you know, I mean, I go, you know what? <clears throat> he's already had them in the Word of God. And we just kind of let it hang like that. And you see, in my opinion, what you have to recognize is, I, you know, I don't, want to, I don't want to get in an argument. What I, want to, what I think we need to recognize is that what we have in the Word of God is far superior to what is being promoted through the dreams and visions. It's not a matter of me having a dream. You know, uh, I thought there was a really interesting article. I don't really read Leadership Magazine very often, but I was at my brother-in-law's house, and he's a pastor of a Baptist church, and a really big Baptist church, and we have a lot of dialogue. It's been really fruitful over the years. We're the same age, same background. I mean, I became, I mean he was on Campus Crusade. Our, our background was very similar, and we married sisters, and, but I went in a more reformed route, and he's kind of, uh, although, you know, I think God is, I'm really blessed by what God is doing in him and in his life. But I was at his house, uh, and he had Leadership Magazine, and I was reading an article by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which I thought was really interesting. You know, all know Bonhoeffer, right? Cost of Discipleship. And he said in the article, God, the article I think was t- is entitled, God Hates Visionary Dreaming. And I thought, wow, and I started reading it. And basically the argument was, God hates visions because if you're the pastor... If you're the head of some type of religious movement, Christian movement, and you have a dream, you're going to measure your success. You're going to measure the success of your congregation. You will measure the very success of God based upon whether or not your vision comes true. We have to recognize that the vision that this prophet is talking about, the the vision that we read about in the Proverbs is these eyes to see that the Word of God is in fact true. That your eyes are open, not to see new visions, but your eyes are open to see the truth of the Word of God as it has been delivered to us once for all. The pastor that I had been discipling, and I think I had mentioned this earlier, his church had just skyrocketed, and you know it's into the thousands now. And uh, he didn't understand why all our church was still just in the hundreds. And he wanted to help me out. And he asked me that question. He goes, what's your vision? I think I'd mentioned this earlier in the week. And I said, you know what my vision is? Because when he gets right down to it, even if I wanted to do the dream vision thing, I'm just not very good at that. You know what I mean? I just, it was like, I don't know. I mean, like, let me try that. Let me think where I want us to go. I don't know. I, five-year plan? I have no idea what I'm doing in five years. You know, I'm, I'm a day-to-day kind of guy. My, my response was, you know, my, my, my vision is to preach the pure gospel, purely administer the sacraments, and practice church discipline when necessary. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like, that was pretty much the end of the conversation, and it was just, all right, I guess that's okay. People want a church that's alive. They don't want full, one full of dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy, I think, is such a faithless term. I also mentioned this earlier. It is a tacit accusation against the pure preaching of the gospel, which in their estimation produces death. I mean, think about I mean, really think about that term, dead orthodoxy, recognizing that orthodoxy really just means right teaching or right instruction. What, a, what an accusation against the scriptures that is, that teaches that, us that it is through the gospel, right? 
For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe that, is, that, that God had determined to save those through the message preached, right? right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. I mean, that, to say that orthodoxy somehow produces death, I think is just, there is in that a faithlessness that I think needs to be addressed. Nonetheless, people want a, uh, a live church, right? They want a church where you walk in and it's alive. Now, I did, so we were one time accused of being a dead church. We, you know, somebody came and they visited, a neighbor visited them, they came here. What did you think of the church? Well, you know, it was okay, kind of dead. Kind of a dead church. And that came to my ears. You know, I don't want to be the pastor of a dead church. So I was trying to figure out, what makes a dead church? Well, how do you evaluate that? What does that mean, we're dead? So I did a radio show on it. That's the way I like to find things out. You know, what makes a church alive? I asked that question. Church growth experts say that people make a decision to stay or not to stay at a church in the first six minutes of attendance. That's, they, you know, they do all these studies. I get these, my brother-in-law, he gets all this information. Six minutes. That's how long it takes to decide if the church is alive. After, on this radio broadcast, after listening to a variety of explanations of what made a church alive, since no one really was willing to judge the genuine faith of the members, people weren't going, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying they're not real Christians. Nobody was willing to be that judgmental. And since it's, the decision is made in the first six minutes, it's really not doctrine either. So the answer isn't, you know, the people aren't genuine believers, and the answer isn't the doctrine is false doctrine. I, don't, I can't give you my whole reasoning behind this. I mean, I don't have time. I don't want to lay it out for you. But I did come to the conclusion, based upon this particular poll, that a live church has good lighting and a good bass player. <laughs> and I mean, I say that in jest, but I'm thinking, okay, let's really analyze what you're saying. Because people would say things like, you know, you walk in and you just feel it. Okay, you just know there's something about it. Can you define that for me? Well, not really. You know, it's just something. And, and I was thinking, okay, well, what happens, you know, in a lot of churches in the first six, you walk in, right? It's got nice lighting. So, by the way, I immediately got new lighting for our church, ordered new lighting, put it in. Because <laughs> we had those neon lights, and we're like, okay, that's not fluorescent or whatever they were. And, uh, you know, we had a good bass player. I think we, we've got a, new, a, new, a good one now, you know, but we don't usually, I don't know, how, yeah, well, I guess he plays within the first six minutes. So we made sure we had those two things. But what's happening in the first six minutes, you know? It's just kind of this impression, this impression that you get. Bottom line is that it is a feeling or a mood for many uh, modern evangelicals that is their evaluation of a true and live church. But church history, I think, through sound exegesis, comes to a quite different conclusion. And I think this is a good conversation to have with our Christian friends, and that is... Um, what makes a church a church? What actually makes it a church? The Belgic Confession states, the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head 
By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church, and no one ought to be separated from it. In short, the marks of the true church are the pure preaching of the gospel, the pure administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of church discipline when necessary. Now, our Christian friends tend to move from church to church a lot more than uh, the people in this room. You know, many of you were raised in the OPC, and you're staying in there, and you don't, you don't, you know, you don't, you don't change churches for flimsy and capricious reasons. You know, it's your family. You recognize that there's a there's a uh, there's a connection here with these people that is lifelong. But that's not really. Uh, the habit of modern evangelicals. There's a lot of church shopping and church moving. And I think that um, it would do them well to hear a good biblical argument as to what they actually should be looking for in a church. The marks of the church, I think, is a good conversation to have. I hope you all have web pages. We're, doing, uh, we're redoing our web pages. And I'm gonna, at the last talk, I'm going to talk about different ways that I think we as a uh, the church, the Reformed Church, can kind of implement in a practical way a lot of things that I'm talking about. Well, one of them is obviously having a web page, and I think if you have a web page, then you have your little list on the side here, your little, you know, uh, uh, what's it called, the contents, you know, your little table of contents, and you have questions and answers. And I think one of, what it would really be good to have is what should I be looking for in a church? Because a lot of people would, I think, actually, you know, if they're looking at, they're going down and googling, and they find you, and people don't really know what they're looking for when it gets right down to it, because what they're looking for is a mood. Right? What they're looking for is, I won't know until I walk in it. And I think it's a good conversation to have to go look at it. There's, there are things you should be looking for in terms of what a true church is. I think that's a good conversation to have. It's a good thing to get out there. By the way, it necessarily follows from these marks that the primary biblical method for nurturing our relationship with God is, on the other side of the true marks of the church, to be a participating listener of the preached word, a participating communicant at the Lord's table, and a participating member in good standing of God's covenant family. So that's our side of that. You know, if you have the marks of the true church, then you have the marks, if you will, of the true Christian. We live in an age of single-verse exegesis. Christians live and die via the verses they have, quite frankly, hanging on their refrigerator, as I'd mentioned earlier. And I talked earlier also about how many arguments we have with Baptists, and it's so easy for them, right? Because they have one verse that says, believe and be baptized. And we have to explain to them this long covenantal idea, which is so difficult. And again, I would advise you to, keep, to find quicker ways to muscle up your theological arguments, uh, keeping in mind that this, the entire Sermon on the Mount can be read in probably about 12 to 15 minutes. So hopefully we, you know, you... You have your. I, I was a journalism major for a while, and uh, and they would say in your lead, right? You got to have it in your lead. You got to have it all there, where somebody because they may not read the second paragraph, right? And not only that, in journalism, uh, if you submit an article and it's too long, guess what they do? They just cut the bottom out. They, they don't go well. You know how do I? How should I make this? And keep, they just cut it from the bottom. And so what you want to do, I think, in conversations with people, if you want to really be engaging in your conversation, is be able to say something right up front to kind of get them thinking and get them to understand. And then you follow through with, uh, with what you're saying. Be that as it may, I think it's a good idea to point out to your Christian friends that if they read the whole Bible, they will discover some but very little space devoted to the things we talked about last night. 
very little space devoted to fasting or small groups or retreats and things like that. On the other hand, there's a great deal of space and emphasis devoted to the three marks that we just talked about. I think if you really want to be helpful, if you really, I think, for, yourself, for ourselves as well, but for our neighbors, help them understand God's method for nurturing and preserving His children. Preaching. Paul's uh, words to the young pastor, Timothy, was, Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. 2 Timothy 4.2 No less than 130 times is the word preach used in the New Testament. God's proclamation, usually through prophets, teachers, apostles, pastors, of His law and gospel flood the pages of Scripture. He doesn't give them how-to books. He doesn't send them on retreats. He seldom asks them to increase the length of their quiet times or fast. I'm not saying you never do that, but that's not what we see in terms of the preponderance of the message. He does, however, continually call his people to hear his word, law and gospel, proclaimed in the assembly of the saints over and over and over and over again. The law of God, friends, in evangelical circles is continually under siege. Yet, it is the purest system of ethics. It is what God has determined to be good and right and true. The Apostle Paul states that the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good, Romans 7.12. Of course, without the gospel, the law is merely a minister of death, 2 Corinthians 3.6, because no one can obey the law at a sufficient level to save himself. The gospel is ever beautiful and should be ever before us. The gospel is salvific. It is the means by which God saves souls. It is life-changing. Romans 1.16, Galatians 5.22 and 23. With the peace of a properly preached monergistic gospel, that is where the, the power of salvation comes from one source, mono meaning one, erg meaning power. A monergistic gospel is when the power, all the power of salvation comes from one place, God, as opposed to a synergistic gospel, which is a combination of efforts between God and man to save oneself. But with the peace of a properly preached monergistic gospel, one can embark upon seeking to obey the law of God without fear of judgment or banishment. If you turn on the radio and you listen to sermons, there is very little gospel being preached. It's interesting, I find, that as repulsed as modern evangelicals are with God's law, they are at the same time hungry to be told what to do. It's a, I think it's an interesting conundrum. I've, again, I have pastors and I listen to their tapes and we get together and I talk to them about it. And what they try to do is remove the law. They're trying to get their people out from under the law in a wrong sense, I think. I don't think they understand what it means to be under the law. So what they do is they get the law out I remember one sermon in particular. He said, you know what? You've got to quit worrying about the Ten Commandments and obeying all this stuff. And what you need to do is, you know, pray and seek God and meditate. All he did, and I explained it to him, and he got it. I go, you know what? All you did was remove one law and give him another law. You've got to quit doing this, and you have to do that. It's still a list of things to do. Neither one of them was the Gospel. Ask your friends if, uh, quote, you know, Jesus, where, you know, he's asked, what is the greatest commandment, right? And he says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Ask your friends if that's the law or the gospel. And what you'll find is most of them will say that's the gospel, because the word love is in it. 
And you have to tell them, no, that's not, the, that's not the gospel, that's the law. I mean, Jesus says right there, right, on this hang the commandments, right? They, that distinction needs to be made, that the law is what God demands from us and the gospel is what God provides for us. And that distinction needs to be made, and it's a very muddied thing today. Our evangelical friends need to know that the gospel is not merely for the unsaved, but for the saved as well. Oftentimes, you'll hear, the only time you'll hear the gospel preached in many churches is when they're telling people to tell other people the gospel. It is the great expression of God's love, the gospel is, for his children. What is more nurturing than a child coming into a greater and deeper understanding of a parent's love? Pastors who seek to express the depth of God's grace and love will most effectively nurture the flock under their care. They will preach the gospel. That's what it, one, you know, mark number one of the true church is the preaching of the gospel. Keep in mind that the reason modern evangelicalism cannot suffer the demands of God's law, and this is something I think it's good to understand, the reason people don't like the law is because they have little grasp of the grace of Christ's gospel. When the preaching of the law reaches its point of conviction, which generally happens quite quickly, instead of resting on the covenant promise of God in Christ, they seek to shoulder the portion of God's law with a synergistic gospel, which a synergistic gospel demands. See, a flimsy gospel can only accommodate an attainable law. Do you understand? I don't know if you understand what I'm, my point here, but I, this I know I've experienced for so long. It wasn't, I know for me, until I understood that I am saved by grace alone through faith alone, based upon the law-keeping of Christ, if you will, that I could, that, and I understood that, and I understood that, you know, that gavel went down and I was acquitted based upon the righteousness of Christ, that I could then look at the law of God and not feel condemned. I could look at the law of God and go, okay, give it all to me. I, um, I think of this in sports terms. You know, it's the difference between being uh, trying out for a team and having all that stuff laid on you and you're thinking, am I going to make it? And actually being on a team with a coach who's got great demands. You know, one is you're, you're, every day you're going home going, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? I mean, you know, am I right in the eyes of God? Am I going to go to heaven? I don't know. I don't know. The other one, the other one is, you know, I, I'm in. And I'm in, and I, and I can suffer the demands of this coach. I had a coach one time. I used to do, uh, um, I went to college on a track scholarship, but I was just a high jumper. And, I, and then I, later on I became a decathlete. And uh, that's the decathlon, you know, it's where you do ten events. And uh, I wanted, I, I've always been one who believes that you should have the best coaches possible. And uh, the man I was living with, the guy I was living with at the time, had won the Olympic trials in 1980 in the pole vault. We had been friends since ki we were kids. But, of course, in 1980, if you remember, we didn't go to the Olympics. So he won the Olympic trials and he didn't get to go. But he was born in Brazil, and so the next two Olympics he got to go uh, as a Brazilian, even though uh, he didn't speak a word of Portuguese and had never, I think, been to Brazil, except that he was born there. But it was easier for him to make it as a Brazilian. Anyways, we were, at a, we were at our house one day, and we had a bunch of track guys over, and there was a man named Andre Krasinski who was there, and he was a coach. And um, he had coached Daley Thompson in the decathlon. I don't know if you know who Daley Thompson is, but he won the Olympic gold medal twice in the decathlon, best athlete in the world. 
And we were talking, and I, I told him, I go, you know, Andre, I'm, I'm, you know, I've been doing some decathlons. I've had a reasonable amount of success, but I really need to be coached. And he said, well, you know, I'll coach you. You come up to Oregon, and, I'll, you'll, you know, I'll coach you. So I said, all right. You know, so I was with Athletes in Action at the time, and I raised all the support, and I moved up to Oregon. I had my VW bus with my javelin and my pole vault poles and my discus and shot put, and I'm, you know, you know getting 30 miles per gallon going one mile an hour up, uh, you know. <laughs> Mount, whatever that is, Mount St. Helens. And um, I get there, and uh, I show up at Oregon, University of Oregon on the track, and I'm like, here I am, you know, and there's a really good pool of athletes. And he looked at me like, who are you? I go, Andre, you remember we, I was at, we, you know, we were at my house, we talked about it. He goes, and he was from, um, I think he was Russian, and he goes, sorry, too many athletes. I'm like, yeah, I moved up here. And you said you were going to, co- you know, and it's like, sorry. And I'm, like, I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I've raised support. I'm here. I've got a place to live. And no, sorry. I have too many guys. So I'm just thinking, what? And so one of the guys get, comes up to me and he goes, um, you know, he's just testing to see if you, you know, how committed you are. So you've got to just come back. So I went home, you know. I had nothing to do. I sat around. I didn't even have a TV. And... Uh, you know, I probably went for a jog, came back the next day. No, they're too busy. I went back four or five days, and finally after the fifth day, as if in disgust, he said, okay, but it's going to cost you $25 a month. I'm like, all right, you know, okay. You know, it's like, <laughs> fine, you know. So I'm working out with these guys, and I'm like I say, these were the top-notch uh, pole vault. It was all pole vaulters and decathletes, top best guys in the country. And um, he, just, he just had sheer disgust with me and for six weeks had nothing good to say about anything I did. He'd either ignore me or give me like this, <laughs> you know, like what have I done to allow you in? I mean, the whole time the relationship was tentative, you know? The whole time I'm like, I'm feeling like a Roman Catholic, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, but that's the way my Roman Catholics feel. They feel like I, they feel that assurance is presumptuous. You know, you can't presume to be saved. It's got to be, there's got to be a question mark the whole time. And there was this big question mark the whole time that I was there for six weeks, at least the first six weeks. And then after, finally, after six weeks, I did something and he gave me like this itty bitty tiny compliment. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> I've arrived. Andre acknowledges me. <laughs> but my point in this is that we need to understand, I think our Christian friends need to understand the grace of God. They need to understand the, the graciousness of God's grace. They need to understand the full expression of God's grace. Because if you don't have a a a gracious grace, then you have to create an obtainable law. You see, a weak gospel demands a weak law. And the problem is, even when you have the weak law, you're still not keeping it. I had a friend call me up one time who was, uh, he had a similar background to mine, you know, just kind of a crazy background, wasn't raised in a Christian family and probably a little bit more off the deep end than I ever was. And but he came to faith and, 
And he started attending some church, and he called me up, and he was just so discouraged because he attended a church, and there was kind of really a level of antisepticness that made you feel in that church as if you, you're, you're, you're in. And he called me up. He goes, I, I just can't be a Christian anymore. I go, why? His name was Chuck. I go, why, Chuck? He goes, I just can't be like those people. I go, what is it you can't be? You can't be a saved sinner? Is that what you can't be? Because I think anybody can be a saved sinner. Do, do you not want to do the right thing? Do you not want to, you know, be sanctified? And he goes, no, I want to do the right thing. I want to walk with God. I want, I want, I want. I go, well, you know what? That's it. I go, it's a matter of recognizing that when the grace of God comes upon a person, he, you know, Ezekiel says, you know, it's recorded in Ezekiel, that I will cause you to walk in my statutes. This is the idea that you, you have this desire to do right. You don't excommunicate people who are struggling out of sin, right? We don't excommunicate. We have a guy in our church who for years and years, he's struggled, you know, with drug addiction and other stuff. And um, I'll tell you, I... I you know, I, I hesitate to mention this because, you know, we're not at the end of the day, but it's been years. But he has an understanding of justification by faith. He has an understanding of the distinction of law and gospel. He has that. And so, you know, he, he comes and he does all pretty well for a while. And then I get a phone call. Or Dave gets a phone call, right? And it's like, okay, we've got to go down and get him. And then we're visiting him at the Twin Towers, which is the prison in L.A., one time I had to talk him out of, the Gardena police called me and I had to talk him out of a building. You know, I mean, and then, he, then he's in jail or he's doing, doing this thing and then he comes back and he does everything we ask, you know, all the things, you know, to, to repent. He's really, quite frankly, never been near excommunication. He's, 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 you know, he's made some really bad choices in his life. The sin has got him by the throat. He fails and he genuinely repents, and he'll repent, and it'll be a year and a half. He'll be at church every Sunday, and I think it's a sad thing. I think in a certain sense, you know, he's kind of trashed his life. You know, he's pushing 40 now, and he's, you know, he's a neat guy, and he's a sweet guy, and he'd be a great husband if this wasn't there. He'd be, a, you know, just a gem of a person. Yet at the same time, I'm so pleased when I see him at church because he recognizes that his right standing before God is based upon the righteousness of Christ, and not the fact that he lives up to a standard. We don't excommunicate people who are trying to dig themselves out of a hole. We, have, we recognize, and we're going to get to the excommunication in terms of one of the marks of the church, right? It's a, the, the, the discipline. But in the preaching of the gospel, we have to understand that the full expression of the gospel, when understood, allows the full expression of the law. Right? This guy, this coach, Andre... When he said, when he, I mean, he demanded perfection. You know, I'd be doing pole vault drills, and he'd be like, you know, I'm hit, my arm's here, and he's like, no, 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 no. He's yelling at me. He's like, no, you know. I'm like, what? It's like, what? You know, it's like, no, this. It's like one it's eighth of an inch. I'm like, what? Is, you know, you're not doing it right. You know, he'd yell at me and walk away. But I was in, you see. I was in now. So you know what? I never said to him, you know, you're... Your law is too harsh. Your law is too burdensome. You know, I, I was, wasn't that. I'm like, I'm like, tell me everything. I'm only going to hear for a while. I want the full expression of your knowledge as the best coach in the world. Tell me everything. I know I can't do it right, but I want to know what's right. And it's not, I'm not going to feel like I'm kicked out because you said I'm in. And with his little circle, circle of trust, you're in. 
movie reference. You're in, right? And when you're in, <laughs> some people are like, what movie is that? You know, he, you're in. You're one of his guys, one of his group. And I think that's the same thing. I feel like, you know, uh, the law and the gospel. We should not be afraid of the law. Christians should not be afraid of the full expression of the law. But if you don't have the full expression of the gospel, the law is a minister of death. And I'm afraid that's kind of what's happening. If we have a compromised gospel, we have a compromised law. And so not only do you not have the assurance of pardon before God, you don't have proper and the full instruction of the law. Both, and both of those things suffer. All right. I'm going to get into those next, the next two, uh, but first we'll take a little break. And uh, I need a break myself. Take a little more water. And, uh, but let's, uh, let's close this session in prayer. Father God, we do thank you for the graciousness of your grace. And may we, Father, understand it. May we understand truly, Father, the depth of your love and the depth of your mercy. May we ever recognize that we are clothed in Christ and when you see us, you see his righteousness imputed to us. May we, Father, as your people, take great comfort in this. And may at the same time, Father, may we seek, as Jesus had instructed, to walk in your law with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, with everything we can muster. And Father, help us to deliver the message of this comfort to our Christian friends, that they might not feel the burden of the law, that they might not feel the weight of the commandments, somehow estranging them from their Father in heaven. Help them, Father, to know the truth. And help us, Father, to to bring it to the community, Father, to your community. Through Christ we pray. Amen.